Well, please take up your Bibles and turn with me to Romans and chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, very famous chapter. We're on page 1123, 1123. We're going to read from verse 26 to the end of the chapter, Romans chapter 8. Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that For those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, we're just going to focus on one particular verse in that passage. Uh, before we get to that, let's, let's pray together. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, help us to understand, to rightly divide your word, to, to grasp the consequences of what you say to us even now. And may you help us to take away from this place into the week ahead the truth, the good truth that you are bringing to us even now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's going to be Romans 8.28. I wonder if you guessed it was going to be that verse. It's a, a justly famous verse amongst Christians, isn't it? Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So, so you can hear in, in the verse that it's a promise for those who love God, those who belong to the Lord. It isn't a promise for those who are not trusting Jesus as their Lord. But for those who are believers, it's a big promise, isn't it? 
it, it's just huge. It's a big promise because of a small word. All, all things work together for good. All things are used by God, woven together by God for good. All things? Yes, every one of them, even including the suffering. In this very chapter, Paul writes of suffering and groaning and tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and peril and sword. He really means all things. And God is sovereign over all things. He's truly in charge of everything that happens. Now, perhaps you already believe, you believe that. You know, God is in charge of the weather, yep. Sickness, mm, the animals, yep. What about technology? Is God in charge of that too? When I'm driving, sometimes I, I tell myself, he is the God of the traffic lights. He's in charge of when it goes red. Just obey the speed limit and trust him. What about people? The people you have to deal with, the awkward ones as well. Is he in charge of them too? Is he in charge of your enemy? Listen to this from Exodus 34. I always find this fascinating. No one will covet your land when you go up three times each year to appear before the Lord your God. The people had to go up to the tabernacle and then later to the temple at a particular place in the land, all the men leaving the land undefended. And God said, he promised, no one will covet your land at those points. He's in charge of what people even desire, even their enemies. He really means all things. We, we don't always understand how it works, of course, because we cannot see all things but we can trust that God has a plan. And you know the, uh, the common illustration where you see the back of a tapestry. The tapestry is just a mess, isn't it? You can't make out the big picture. The threads are going all over the place. But when you turn it over, you can see how the artist has woven it together just so to make something beautiful, something intentional. It's a big promise by a big God for the believer for the one who trusts the Lord Jesus Christ, all things work together for good. But what is good? What does good mean here? Perhaps what the world defines as good will be different to what God defines as good. So we need to think carefully. We need to be biblical about this. Even more so, as some people who call themselves Christians promotes a wrong definition of good. And I'm thinking particularly here of those false teachers who promote the prosperity gospel. And there are plenty of them around. It's not hard to find, is it? There are TV channels like TBN. YouTube has thousands upon thousands of videos from these false teachers. There are unhelpful books around too. Your WhatsApp feed can come up with prosperity gospel messages little pictures with little kind of quotes about how God is going to bless you and make you victorious. You need to watch out for it everywhere. They teach things like this. Well, God wants to bless you with more money. He doesn't want you to suffer. He wants to heal all your illnesses now. It's not what the Bible says, but they want to promote the victorious, the prosperous life. And what they're doing, in fact in part, is giving you a false definition of what is good. The false teachers say Jesus wants you to prosper, and by that they're talking about material, worldly success, about fulfilling all your desires. 
There's often this, this language of victory rather than struggle, of triumph without any tragedy, of thinking everything is going to go well for you now. Any challenge, any challenge can be conquered through faith in Jesus Christ. God wants you to win, is what they're saying. There's Afri actually an African church called the Winner's Chapel. There's an interesting one to go to, as though that's what's most good. That's what's most important to God. It, on TV, you hear it sometimes. The winning athlete sometimes says, oh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, that's taking the Bible out of context. And what about the Christian athletes who didn't win? It's a kind of false advertising because it doesn't match with the Bible. Jesus does not promise you a promotion or, or, or a boyfriend or, or an A-star. He doesn't promise you those things. Not that kind of victory. Think about who's writing this. The Apostle Paul, under the Spirit's inspiration. In all things, God works for good for those who love him. That's what he's writing, isn't it? Does he believe that good means all is going to go well for him now? material triumph physical victory in everything now no no he, this is the apostle who boasts of his weakness let me read to you from 2 corinthians 11 five times i received from the jews the 40 lashes minus one three times i was beaten with rods once i was pelted with stones Three times I was shipwrecked i spent a night and a day in the open sea i've been constantly on the move I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, Gentiles in the city, the country, at sea, false believers. I've laboured and toiled, often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. You know, he clearly doesn't mean that good equals material prosperity, immediate success with no hardship. He clearly doesn't mean that. He does mean that those difficulties will be worked together by God for good, but the good is not about the easy success now. Now, I wonder what you think the good is that God is talking about in this passage. I, I'm, I'm not so much asking you if you can give a good theological understanding of Romans chapter 8. I'm asking what your life choices reveal about what you truly believe is good. I was speaking to a, a mum at our toddler group recently about her future. As you can see that things were going to change for her when her children were grown, looking long to the future at this point. She'd have time to pursue different priorities, but, but she didn't really know what those priorities were or what they should be. She didn't know what she was doing with her life. I wonder what your priorities are what is it that you pursue? I think that will show what you believe, really, deep down, is good, good for you. Or if you're a parent, um, you want the best for your child, don't you? One writer said this, As parents, we all want the best for our children, but with almost limitless choices before us, we must prioritise, and the choices we make will reveal what we truly believe is best. Okay, let's do an exercise. Imagine that your life is a business meeting, one long business meeting. This is taken from um, an Australian teacher called Tony Payne. Uh, and he says, well, you've got to think about what you want to achieve at the meeting or achieve in your life. And you put it on the agenda. So I wonder what would be on the agenda 
of your life, the kinds of things you need to include doing in your life, what's worth pursuing, what is good. Maybe someone's agenda looks like this. Uh, keep safe, decent job, good pay, um, get husband, wife, uh, trust God, pray, a comfortable house if possible, go to church, read the Bible, have fun, um, you know, gain respect from your colleagues, an occasional holiday. Maybe that's the kind of things you'd include. Um, or if you were going to do an agenda for your child's life, what would be on that? Keep safe, get good exam results, have friends, go to Sunday school. Behave well, do a sport maybe, hear the Bible taught at home, go to Christian midweek clubs, learn an instrument. What is actually on your agenda? You know, we might say one thing with our mouths, or even in our heads, but our actions can reveal a lot about what's actually on our agenda, what we think is important, what we pursue, what we see as good. The prosperity gospel is promoting health, wealth and worldly success as though those were the ultimate good things and they become idols. We end up worshipping health or, or, or wealth or worldly success and consider them to be the, the one that will the things that will make us truly happy. And God, well, if he appears on the agenda, oh, that's great because he'll help you get the rest of it. He becomes like a cosmic vending machine. He helps you to achieve the other things on your agenda. But in our, in our better moments, we realise that is not what life is about. Um, let's hear the famous quote from uh, John Piper, which he preached in a sermon, wrote in a book, Don't Waste Your Life. He says this, I will tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Interesting. Consider a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northwest five years ago. When he was 59, she was 51. Now they live in Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball and collect shells. At first, when I read this, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, says Piper. But it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life, before you give an account to your creator, be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells. That is a tragedy, he says. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Over against that, I put my protest, don't buy it. Don't waste your life. We can end up wasting our lives because we've got the wrong things on the agenda. We prioritise the wrong things. We assume the wrong things are good in an ultimate way, whether that's retirement or worldly success or human approval or an easy life. We get the agenda all wrong. So, so what is good? What is true prosperity? Well, back in our passage in Romans 8... Verse 28 says, in all things, God works for good for those who love him. And then verse 29 to 30 says, good, let me tell you what good is. It's bigger than you think. 
It's not what the world says. It's not just an easy life, a few years of success. And that's not promised by God. No, you're aiming too low. You need to aim higher. There's something bigger that is encapsulated with this word, good. Have a look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The good that God is working out for the Christian is being glorified. That means being with Jesus and being like Jesus. So go back to the night before Jesus died. He prays, he prays, he prays for all Christians. This final prayer before the crucifixion. What's he going to pray for? What does he consider most important for your existence? Is it that new job? Is it the girlfriend or freedom from illness? Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. It's the best thing he can pray for for you. That we may be with him. That we may see his glory. Enjoying Jesus forever. That is better than what the world offers. That's the deepest and richest relationship possible. That is good. Being glorified means being with Jesus and being like Jesus. Verse 29, it talks about being conformed to the likeness of his son. You know, that's massive character change. That's part of our destiny conformed to be like Jesus you know loving noble true wise faithful good full of joy kind being being poured into the mold of the perfections of Jesus Jesus is the master design he's the true human being we're, we're, we're the human becomings people have said he's the true human being he's the master design and for the Christian our destiny is to be like him Jesus puts it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. He does look after our needs in this life. And I use the need, word needs carefully, not wants, but needs. He does look after our needs in this life. But the priority to seek first is him, it's his kingdom, being in his kingdom, serving the king, trusting the king. The priority is his righteousness going his way, being more like Jesus. What is truly good? Being with Jesus and being like Jesus. Being conformed to the image of his son and being glorified one day. Being with Jesus and being like Jesus. Now here's a, a thought experiment I came across from a pastor and writer called Eric Raymond. The experiment is designed to make us think, do I believe that? Do I believe that the ultimate good is being with Jesus, being like him? And he writes this. We have to ask the question, do you even want to go to heaven? <laughs> Let's say I had the ability to make you a deal where you could stay on this world forever. You would never die. And the ability to enjoy this world would not end. You could play all the video games, watch all the sunsets. Drink and eat all the whatever. There'd be football. There'd be hunting. He's American, you understand. There'd be shopping. Whatever else you want. 
You could just ride the merry-go-round of this world forever without ever having to put in another quarter. The only catch is this, no God. That's right, you can't pray, read the Bible, go to church or anything. Would you take the deal? The very thing that makes heaven so heavenly is God. That which makes Christians long for heaven is the lack of Godwardness here, starting in our own souls, but moving on out to the world around us. Ultimately, we don't want more rides on the merry-go-round. We want fellowship with God, unhindered by our sinful flesh. Prosperity thinking has subtly lulled us to sleep, dreaming solely of sunsets, success, and self-fulfillment. Friends, it's not ultimately about any of this. The gospel brings us to God. It's about being with Jesus, about being like him. Verse 29 and 30 tells us what is meant by being good, glorified, conformed to his image. The question is whether you truly believe that that is good, the ultimate good. True prosperity, then, is getting more of God, more of Jesus, growing to be like him. Are we overly influenced by what the world says about what's good? Or influenced by what the false teachers tell us is important? Sometimes we can see that, that prosperity teaching affecting our own thinking. You know, it can happen something like this. We start to think... Everything's going wrong in my life at the moment. God must be angry at me. Do you catch yourself saying that sometimes? It's like we believe, you know, material success now, health, passing our exams, getting the job. That's what God gives to those who behave well. So if I don't have them, God must be upset at me. But that's not what he promises. And sometimes we let the things of this world rise in our affections and we want them more than God. Listen to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones on, on why Paul says this promise, Romans 8, 28, uh, is for those who love God. Why didn't Paul say for those who believe in Jesus? Why does he particularly focus on love for God? And Lloyd-Jones says this, I believe that Paul had a special reason for using the term love rather than the term believing at this point. One of the best ways where we can decide immediately if we love God or not is our reaction to adversity. There are many people who, when trials and tribulations arise, they give up. They feel they've been let down. So this is a way of seeing whether you are a Christian. Do you love the Lord? Does this promise apply to you? Do you care about the gift or the giver? Do you love the God who allows you to go through suffering? Or do you just use God for what he can give you? God doesn't promise there will be no tough times. He doesn't promise health or worldly success now. He promises that the tough times will be used for something better, for the ultimate good. He promises to keep us Trusting Jesus, persevering, following on, and that way we're going to enjoy him forever one day. That way we're going to be there when we're glorified. That way he'll polish the rough diamond into what he wants us to be. That's the good that he promises. So if you believe Romans 8.28, 
Won't your attitude and thinking and behaviour be different when the tough times come? Yet we're going to call out for relief and for help, absolutely. But we'll also trust him in the middle of the adversity. We'll even see the hardship as an opportunity to, to grow, to draw closer to the Lord. You know, um, match of the day, the, the highlights there, um, it's just the best bits of the match, isn't it? I wonder what it would be like to show the highlights reel of a Christian, Christian life. He's not going to show the bits where you got the promotion or the pay rise or the applause of the people. He'll show the bits where you loved him more than the things of this world. That's what he'll show on the highlights reel. The times where you trusted him through the tears. The moments where you put him first because you love him more than his gifts. The perseverance in trusting him day by day. So those agendas need to change, don't they? Uh, and it's not because you're told, oh, this is the way your agenda ought to be, this is your duty in life, you need to have these priorities now. It's more because it's, it's good to have different priorities, to have a different kind of agenda. Perhaps you're thinking it should be like this, and I don't think this is quite right. But perhaps you think your agenda should be more like this. Trust and love God. Pray and worship. Go to church and serve. Read the Bible. Keep safe. Have a decent job. Get a husband or wife, maybe. Comfortable house. Have fun. Occasional holiday. Beware of thinking. All I need to do is put God at the top, and then he can help me to do the rest of the agenda. It's kind of subtle, isn't it? But I put God at the top, I prioritise the right things. That's not how our agenda should be. Tony Payne, that Australian writer, he points out that God wants to completely rewrite the agenda of your life. He's our maker, he's the designer. He knows what's good, he knows the best plan for your life. And he wants your agenda to reflect his plans. He wants you to go his way, knowing what is truly good for us. I think the agenda should be a little bit more like this. Trust and love God. Pray and worship. Go to church and serve. Read the Bible. Grow to be more like Jesus. Tell others about the Lord. Love my neighbour. Encourage others in following Jesus. Go to work and glorify God in my work. Be single or be married, but glorify God in my singleness or my marriage. Use my house, use my possessions for God's glory. Rejoice in the good things God gives with thanksgiving. That's true prosperity, isn't it? That's the good that God intends for us, that everything is wrapped up in being with him, in loving him, in growing to be more like him, in serving him. Is that what you want for yourself? Is that what you see as good? Is that your aim for your children? Do you really want the best for them? Because that's it. Going God's way. Part of God's mission. Growing to be more like God's son. Being with Jesus. Now and one day forever and ever face to face. That's true prosperity. That's the good that God designed us for. That's what to aim for. And that's what he promises to work out in your life, using all things together for good. I'm going to pray. Let's pray.
Lord, help us not to be sidetracked, to head off in the wrong direction, to be misled by the world or by false teachers. Help us to believe you. Help us to believe that your plan for us is good. Not just the right thing or the ought thing, but good. I thank you that you're going to work that out for your people. How kind you are. You're going to bring it to pass for us. You will look after us. You will work all things together for good. Help us to trust you and believe you. In Jesus' name, amen.